Hey, we are in week two of our Christmas series titled Fear Not. We are looking at four different conversations that angels had with the biblical characters, Christmas characters. And the first thing that comes out of the angels' mouths as they approach these characters is, do not be afraid or fear not. Thank you, yeah. So we're looking at these four different conversations. If you missed last week, you absolutely need to go back and listen to it. Um, it's, it's such a powerful, inspired message, and I would really, really encourage you to do that. You can get caught up on our... On our uh, various platforms, you can download our app, you can listen to it through there, you can um, subscribe to our podcast, you can go on our website and our media page and listen to it there as well, but I'd really encourage you to go and do this, because this is going to be a really powerful series, I do believe. So this past week, I took um, our kids up to the Shady Brook Light Show. You guys have done that yet? Anybody go through the Shady Brook Light Show? Happened to be Wednesday, and Pico paid for the first 400 cars to go through the Shady Brook Light Show, which is pretty great. $30 value. And so we're like, man, we're going to this light show. We're going to save this money. And so I get into the van to take our kids up there. And of course, the van is on empty, right? The, the light is on. You're probably thinking, there's a theme in your household. Why is the van always out of gas? If you were here last week, Emily shared a story about how... Okay, sure, true. So the battery, uh, no, the, the gas tank was basically empty. And so... Um, we, we're like, but there's a $30 value for the first 400 cars, and so I'm not going to stop for gas to go to the Shady Brook Light Show, because I need to get to be one of the first 400 cars to get through this light show, and so we go there, and I'm keep, I keep thinking, oh my goodness, this has got to be the worst place in the world to run out of gas. Don't you think? I mean, how horrible would it be to be the person who ran out of gas during the Shady Brook Light Show? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. <laughs> With the Restoration Church sticker on the back, after all, yeah. <clears throat> I told my son Ethan, if you guys know Ethan, he, um, he asked me every 15 seconds, Daddy, are we going to run out of gas? <laughs> I was like, just, kid, just enjoy the lights. Daddy, are we going to run out of gas? No, man, just enjoy the lights. Daddy, are we going to run out of gas? Fear not. Yeah, and so I, we, we do make it out of the light show, and we actually do make it to a gas station before we... We didn't run out of gas, so we were able to fill up. But um, I, I took that moment as an opportunity to teach Ethan a, a valuable lesson, and I think this uh, loan is worth the price of admission this morning for you, friends. Um, there, be, between you and literally anything and everything, between you and everything, and that everything could be a choice, it could be a relationship, it could be a person, it could be a circumstance or a situation, it could be an experience, between you and everything, there is a gap. And you have to make a choice as to what you are going to put into that gap. Are you going to put doubt and anger and impatience? Are you going to put fear into that gap? Or are you going to put forgiveness and trust and faith, courage and love? Because what you choose to put into that gap actually becomes the filter by which you react or interact with that thing on the other side of the gap. And if you want to insert fear into that, then fear is going to become the filter by which you interact with that thing on the other side of the gap. Now, here's what happens, though. So often is the case that as we get older and we grow and we mature or age, that gap becomes so short that we actually develop defaults as to how we react to those things on the other side of the gap. We don't even have to think about how we're going to react to that thing on the other side of the gap. Because the gap has become so small that we don't even recognize that is there. So my friends, my encouragement to you is that you need to let the gap breathe. We need to become a slower-paced people. You need to slow down. 
You need to acknowledge that there is a gap and you need to step into the gap and you need to say, how am I going to intentionally react and interact with that thing on the other side of the situation? Because I asked my son, Ethan, Ethan, what would happen if we ran out of gas right now? How would you react? And he was like, well, I'd, I'd be afraid, you know, like, and Emily went on this long tyrant of things like this, this tangent of things about last week about how, you know, you run out of gas and all of a sudden you end up with in prison and your children are in foster care because, you know, you left them at home and, and it's true, right? Because if you put fear into that gap, that's where your mind will take you. But what if you were to put courage into that gap? How would you react differently? What if you were to put faith or trust into that gap? And so, my friends, you need to pause. You need to take some time. You need to slow down. Recognize the gap. And so this morning, we're going to talk about one of the biblical characters in the Christmas story named Joseph. And how he had to interact and how he had to deal with the situation that was presented to him. We're going to look at how Joseph overcame the fear of what people think about us. Do you guys have any um, issues with how, what people think about you? Let's just do a r- really quick raise of hands. Uh, who here is concerned about how people think about you? All right, so look around. All those people who don't have your hands raised up, that's just because you are too concerned about how people think about you, right? <laughs> that's why you don't have your hands raised. I think to some level, we all are concerned about how people think about us and how people view us. Do they like the car I drive? Do they like the clothes I wear? Do they like my hairstyle? Do they think I'm funny? Do they fit in? And we become very quickly obsessed with how people think about us. In fact, I think so much of what we do before a watching world is in appeasement of others as we try to earn their conditional love. I absolutely think this is true of most people, actually. And we are so interested in what other people think about us that we are doing what we do in order to gain their approval. And where the watching world most resides in our day and age is, of course, on social media. Where no one ever reveals the real me with all of our fears and doubts and failures and struggles and sins. You know, the first official clinical study on social media just came out last week. And it proves that excessive social media use causes depression. The like button and the comments become a drug that feed our ego, don't they? You know, there used to be this time that the general public criticized magazines for photoshopping models. Do you guys remember this time? And then Instagram came along and provided us all the ability to photoshop and to filter what we appear like and what we look like to the world looking in. And we take and retake selfies. Like, that selfie just wasn't good enough, you know? So I have to retake and I have to try a different angle. Because this one, I only have two chins instead of three. This one, yeah, I mean, like, come on, well, we, we do these things, right? I mean, over and over and over again, we take these pictures that are going to present ourselves a certain way to the world. And hopefully through the filters, we can cure our imperfect skin. And we can present the world a version of myself that will be loved because I'm trying to gain a conditional love from the world. And so in this day and age, who are we really trying to please? I mean, that's really the question, right? Who are we trying to please? So in this week's story, we're going to watch Joseph battle with the opinions of people. When he has to decide between doing what is right and doing what is easy, and doing what he feels called to do, and doing what the world is telling him he ought to do. 
So Joseph, you may know the story, is engaged to a young woman named Mary. She's probably a teenager at this time. Now, in this time of history, engagements were a lot different than they were today, right? If, a, if you're engaged to a person and it just kind of goes south, it goes weird, you can break it off, and there's not a lot of harm done. You can go your separate ways. But in this day and age, you were legally married, essentially, when you were engaged. Like, the parents had decided that these two people, my daughter, your son, were going to come together and be wed, and they had signed legal documents, and you were officially married. At this time, the husband then would go off for about a year's time, and he would build an addition upon his father's house, or he would um, develop a homestead somewhere else. And then when he was finished with that homestead, when he had built your family house, he would come back, retrieve his bride. And then they would go off. But during this time, if you wanted to break off an engagement, you had to legally get divorced. You had to sign papers. You had to get divorced. So with that in mind, we pick up the story in Matthew 1.18. This is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. But before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. And so try to, try to get into the minds of Joseph and Mary. And you have to admit that this must have been a really, really weird conversation, right? I mean, think, think of how this went down. Mary approaches Joseph. Hey, hey, Joey. Hey, buddy. Hey, hey, honey bunches. How you doing? Um, I'm pregnant. But, but, but don't, 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 don't. Settle down, Joseph. It's, it's, it's okay. It was by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph was like, really, really, don't give me that Holy Spirit stuff. Like, come on. Like, I, I saw the way that guy was looking at you with the well. You know, I know what he was thinking. I know what's going on here. Don't give me that Holy Spirit stuff. Now, I, I'm Joseph. I'm, I'm kind of like, how long did it take you to come up with this story, right? This is so outlandish and outrageous, right? From Joseph's perspective, there are really only two options in considering his fiance Mary. She's either, what, crazy or she is a liar, like, come on, like, the Holy Spirit doesn't impregnate people. Come on, like, this doesn't happen. You're either crazy or you're a liar. And the fact is, I don't really want to marry a crazy woman, and I don't want to marry a liar. She says, I'm pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So you have to acknowledge at some point, Joseph is going to ask himself, if I stay with this girl, what is everyone going to think of me? Well, I'm crazy, and I'm a liar. If I, if I stay with this girl, what's everyone going to think about us? Because from her perspective, or Mary's perspective, she's already marked. Uh, a woman who was found to be pregnant outside of wedlock was bestly destined for stoning in their day. She was going to be stoned to death. From his perspective, he's marked for the rest of his life. I mean, he's the guy that got her pregnant, or she got pregnant with someone else, and then from that point on, he's going to have a hard time finding a job. If he divorces her, then at you know, that point, no other father is going to want to bless his daughter to marry a divorced man in their day and age. He might find it difficult to do business with other people. I mean, wherever they go, they're going to have the whispers and the finger pointing, and they're going to be ridiculed and judged and mocked. So we don't exactly know what Joseph was thinking, but we do know from the text that he is going to bail on the relationship. He's getting out of this thing as fast as he possibly can. He doesn't believe her. He doesn't want to take the heat, whatever it may be. He thinks about it, and he's like, I got to move on with my life. I got to get out of this crazy mess. Here's what the text says. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, and so he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now again, from his perspective, this was actually a very honorable and noble thing to do, I think. I'm not going to expose her to public shame, right? I'm not going to make her the ridicule of her community. I don't want her to go through all of that. I'm not going to say to everybody, yeah, she cheated on me, let's pick up our stones and 
and stone her to death. That's not what I want to do. He actually probably really loves Mary. He actually probably really cares about Mary. And he thinks maybe she can still have this baby somewhere. You know, maybe she can go off and raise this child somewhere else and she can live a somewhat normal life somewhere else on her own. But Joseph is about to learn, I think, one of the most important lessons for those who want to honor God. And if you're taking notes, this is, this is big. This is so important. He's going to learn that pleasing God oftentimes means disappointing people. Like that, let, let that sink in for just a moment, that pleasing God oftentimes means disappointing people. He's going to learn the powerful truth that if you want to obey God, then there are going to be many times where the people that you interact with are not going to be pleased with what you are doing. They're not going to agree, and they will not understand. Pleasing God oftentimes means disappointing people. Verse 20 says, but after Joseph had considered this. In other words, right, he's thinking about it. He's weighing the pros and the cons. He's trying to figure out what to do. And the cons of staying with her, of course, outweigh the pros, and so he's going to break up with her. He's going to divorce her. He's going to move on with life. After he considered all this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, the King James says, fear not. Our version this morning says, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So Mary saying it didn't mean a whole lot, but of course, when an angel appears to you, Of course, you're going to believe that. Or are you going to believe it? Verse 21 is so powerful. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. See, at this moment when he awakes from the dreams, you have to imagine how the pendulum of his emotions begin to swing. I mean, can you imagine being told by an angel in a dream, you are going to be the earthly father of the Savior of the world? I mean, you have to be ecstatic. You have to be excited. You can just sense that Joseph is elated by this. I mean, for centuries, it's been prophesied that a Messiah would come. And here is an angel of the Lord telling me that I'm going to be the father of the Messiah. This is like the best day of his life. He's so excited. And yet at the same time, the emotions have to swing the other way as well. What are people going to say about this? Are they, are they going to believe me? What is this going to cost me? You know, on one hand, I get to possibly change the world. But on the other hand... I have no idea how difficult this is going to be. Everyone else is going to say, run for your life. Do not marry this girl. Are you crazy? Do you understand the ridicule? Do you understand what your life is going to be when you marry a pregnant who, uh, a woman who got pregnant outside of wedlock? I, people aren't going to understand that it's by the Holy Spirit. Do you understand how difficult this is going to be? Do you understand how crazy of a decision this is on your hand to make? On the one hand, he wants to please God. But on the other hand, he has all these people telling him that he is crazy, that he should please them and he should not do what God wants him to do. And I can promise you that if you're a follower of Jesus, Jesus you are going to run into circumstances just like this, where you're going to be mitt in the middle. Am I going to please God with my decision or am I going to go and please man? Am I going to do what God wants me to do or am I going to take the easy route and do what I think the world tells me I should do? If you are a follower of Jesus, you are going to come across this situation often. You see, the prayer I pray that over my, over my children almost every single night is, Father, I pray that they would have the wisdom to know what is right, that they would have the courage to do what is right. That they would have the understanding when they reach those situations, that they would have the wisdom to know what is right, and they would have the courage, because it takes courage, doesn't it, to do what is right? 
When the world tells you that you should go one direction, doesn't it take courage to say, I'm going to go in this direction instead? And so I want my children to be children of courage, that they would know what is right, but they would also do what is right. That's my prayer that they would choose to please God. And you see, I think becoming obsessed with what people think about you is actually the quickest way to forget what God thinks about you. That if you just, you know, cave into what the world tells you you ought to do, you are going to forget what God thinks about you. As you become more like the world, you're, you're going to forget who you are under God. And the reality is, for most of us, I think we drift towards wanting to please people. I really do think that's the case. I think for most of us, we drift towards wanting to please people. What do you think about me? Do you like me? Do I fit in? Do I measure up? Am I cool enough? Do you like what I'm doing? Can I be part of your club? Can we be friends? Do you think what I'm doing is right? And we ask ourselves, what is the world going to think about me as I post on social media, as I walk out into the world? What is the world going to think about me? And suddenly, without even meaning to it, we have surrendered our lives to the opinions of others. And we're so concerned with what other people think about us that we're not actually living to please God any longer. And so how do we overcome that? Well, I think one of the easiest ways to overcome that, it's not easy, but one of the most um, true, maybe, forms of doing this is just to reverse this whole thing. Because I think the opposite is also true, that becoming obsessed with what God thinks about you is the quickest way to forget what people think about you. See, living for an audience of one, thank you, Carson Wentz, right? I mean, living for an audience of one... Making that your motto, trying to please God above all, is the quickest and best way to perhaps outgrow the idea that I'm living for the approval of others. Focus your attention, focus your mind and your heart on what God thinks about you, and you will see that you are no longer living for the approval of others. Because I think if you think about it, you can't actually please everybody. I bet you some of you have tried to please everybody, it didn't go well with you. You cannot please everybody. If you try to please people, you're going to fail at some point. If you wear your hair one way and you go to one crowd and say, hey, do you like the color of my hair? Do you like my hair? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. And the other crowd is going to say, no, that's ugly. You paid money for that? Really? There's two sides to every coin, right? To every decision that we make, there are going to be some people who like it, some people who don't. If I believe this politically, will you like me? Yes, I will. No, of course we won't. If you stand in the middle, then everybody's going to hate you. That's just how it works. If you try to please one group, you're going to displease the other. And the bottom line is, no matter how hard you try, you cannot please everyone. But the good news is, my friends, you can please God. You can please God. You can live your life in such a way that God is going to look upon you and say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've done with the little that I've given you. You've done much with it. Well done, good and faithful servant. But how do we overcome living for what everyone else thinks? Well, we surrender our lives to an audience of one because coming, becoming obsessed with what God thinks about us, I think, is the quickest way to forget what people think about us. And so Joseph is going to have to get to a place in his life where he says, you know what? I value the opinion of God more than I value the opinion of people. So how does this play out in our everyday lives? How does this simple truth play out in our everyday lives? And I want to give you two thoughts that will hopefully help us apply this to the way we go forward. So how do we live for God instead of for people? I think first, you have to understand that pleasing God oftentimes means disappointing people. We've already said this. If you're not ready to be criticized for your obedience to God, you're probably not ready 
to follow wholeheartedly after God. And that's just the simple truth. If you're not ready to be criticized for following God, you are probably not ready to wholeheartedly pursue God. I mean, think about all the different ways that Joseph and Mary would be criticized. I mean, they would be publicly disgraced again and again. People would whisper about them. And I don't know how this is going to play out in your life, but there's going to be a time when you're reading God's word and God's word prompts you to do something and you're going to have to wrestle with this idea. Am I going to do what I feel God is calling me to do as told me through his word or am I going to go and follow the crowd? Because if I obey what God is saying, I certainly am going to be criticized for what I'm about to do. Or you may hear the voice of God leading you to do something. You know, you may be a a teenager or, or, or a college student. And you're like, you know what, I, I lived that partying lifestyle for too long, and I just I don't feel like that's what God is calling me to do anymore. And so I'm going to give up the partying lifestyle. I'm going to go to be, begin pursuing a, a right relationship with my Heavenly Father. And all your friends are going to come around and say, are you serious? Are you religious freako? What are you doing? Like, this is fun. You're not coming out with us on Friday nights anymore? And you're going to have to endure the criticism. You might say, you know what, no matter what I did in the past, from now on, I'm going to honor God with my with my sexual purity. And people are like, you're going to do what? Do you know what day and age we're living in? Are you, are you kidding me? What are you, what are you talking about? You're going to do this? And, and you're you crazy re- religious freako. I mean, you, you're, they're going to make fun of you. You have to know that pleasing God is often going to disappoint people. You may feel called to go on a missions trip, and people are like, really? You're going you're gonna to raise up all this money when you could go lay on a beach somewhere? You're going to raise up all this money to give away to the poor. You're going to raise up all this money so you can go and serve those in need. I mean, you could do so much better with that money. You could, you could, you could, uh, you could go on a vacation. You could lay on a beach. You could go buy yourself a car. You could go do any number of things with that. Why are you doing that, you religious weirdo? You may be in a place where you actually, you know, have a high, leave a high, higher paying job to go to a lower paying job because... You felt it was God was calling you to do something meaningful with your life, and you just were stuck in this corporate world, and you were like, I just can't do this anymore. I feel like God is, is calling me to do something. Yeah, I'm going to get paid a lot less, but I'm going to have a meaningful job. And people are going to say, what? Why, why would you ever do that? Isn't money the purpose for why we're here? Isn't that what we're all trying to do is just accumulate more and more and more? And you tell them, well, I'm, I'm trying to please God. I'm trying to do what God is calling me to do, and you're going to be called this weirdo, this freak. Or maybe you're just going to live beneath your means and, and you may stay in a profitable job, but you live on less than you actually make so that you can give sacrificially and generously. And people are going to say, man, why don't you just blow it out? Why don't you just go buy your beach house and your new car and go on those amazing fancy trips? Why don't you just do it all? And you say, well, because I feel like God is calling me to support the local church. I feel like he's calling me to support my local missionaries. I feel like he's calling me to change the world with the resources he has given me. And the world just looks at you, and, and you're just, we're just weird. And we're criticized. And I think anything significant that we do is going to be met with criticism and resistance. And if you're not ready to be criticized by your obedience to God, then you're probably not ready to be used by God. If you're not ready to be criticized for what God is calling you to do, you're probably not ready to be used by God. Because becoming obsessed with what people think about you is the quickest way to forget what God thinks about you. But the opposite is also true. Becoming obsessed with what God thinks about me is the quickest way to forget what people think about me. The second thought I have for you this morning is that 
Extraordinary acts of God often start with ordinary acts of obedience. Extraordinary acts of God often start with ordinary acts of obedience. I mean, think about this. The Savior of the world was born to two teenage kids who said yes to God in a simple act of obedience. But what's, what's crazy is if you get into the mind of Mary and Joseph during this whole thing, right? I mean, okay, here, here's what we're told. We're going to have a boy. We're going to name him Jesus, and he's going to save people. But that's really about it. That's all we're really told. There really are no details. How are we going to raise this kid? Okay, he's the, he's the son of God, right? He, he's God incarnate, right? He's perfect. Like, are we going to have to discipline him? Are we going to have to spank him? Oh, he's perfect, so maybe he'll have to spank us. You know, maybe he'll have to discipline us because, I mean, I, there, there's no details given to Mary and Joseph. They're just told, hey, here's what's going to happen. You're going to have a baby. His name is going to be Jesus. Jesus is going to save you, the people from their sins. But there's no details to help them along this crazy journey. And I think there are times when we say, God, yeah, I, I'm ready to follow you. Just lay it all out for me. Just tell me exactly what's going to happen from here until I die, and then I'll be, co- I'll be okay. Lay it all out. Tell me exactly what's going to happen, and I'm going to be okay. And I think that if God, if we were to ask God that, and he would do that, he would say, you can't handle the details. If I showed you the details, you wouldn't take the first step. If you knew exactly what was going to happen the rest of your life, you wouldn't take the first step into what I'm calling you to do. No, they, they didn't know the details, and this is what I embrace so often, and this is what what I think is so powerful, that we don't have to understand completely to obey immediately. You don't have to have every single piece of the puzzle all put together in order to take the first step into God's obedience. You do not have to understand completely in order to obey immediately. Because going back to last week, what? Outcome is whose responsibility? God's. But obedience is ours. God is going to work it out if he is calling you into it. So you have no idea what might set you into motion with one simple, obedient act of God's calling upon your life. You have no idea what might set into motion when you simply obey what God puts on your heart. You know, when I was a senior in high school, there was a friend of mine who kept, like, I'm, week after week after week, he'd say, hey, Ross, why don't you come with me to this worship service at this university nearby? And I'm like, nah, it's t- 10 o'clock at night on a Sunday night. Like, no, nah, I can't go to that. Like, um, I got homework to do. And then the next week you come, Ross, you, I, I really feel like you're supposed to come with me. Like, I want you to come with me to this worship service. And I'm like, no, dude, I got this paper due in the morning. I can't do it. Uh, the next week you'd say, Ross, come with me again. And, and I'm like, no, I kept making excuses week after week after week. And I just, eventually I was like, fine, will you shut up about this thing if I just go with you one time? And so I went with my friend to this worship service. Uh, along with 2,000 other people at uh, this school called Bethel University in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I experienced something that night that completely changed my life. And not only my life, I experienced something that night that completely changed all of your lives as well. I hadn't even applied to Bethel. I wasn't even considering Bethel. It wasn't even on my list of schools to even consider. But that night, as I experienced that worship service, I was convinced that this is where God was calling me to go to school. I never went on a tour of the school. I never visited a classroom. I simply went to one worship service at this school. I applied to it. I got accepted. I went. And it was at this school that I met Emily, who just so happened to be from Newtown, Pennsylvania. We got married. We had some kids. One day I came to her after a weekend of prayer away, and I said, Emily, I really think we're called to plant a church. But not here in Minnesota. I don't think we're called to plant a church in Minnesota. I think we need to go back out east. And we were met with all sorts of criticism. People were like, are you crazy? You're going to go east? Don't you know that the success rate of planting a new church is like next to nothing? Don't you know that out east it's even less? 
You're crazy. You're going to give up the comfortable, beautiful lifestyle you have here in Minnesota, and you're going to go plant a church in some town that you've never been to? And I was like, yeah, I think that's what we're supposed to do. But knowing that pleasing God oftentimes means disappointing people, and how extraordinary acts of God often start with ordinary acts of obedience, we left Minnesota and we'd ventured east. And six years later to this week, it was this week we arrived in Pennsylvania, six years ago. Here we stand. And so ask yourself, yeah, praise God. Ask yourself how your life might be different if restoration never would have came into existence. Because 19 years ago, my friend Brent asked me to come to a worship service with him. He just had it on his heart that he was supposed to ask me and and continue to invite me. And over and over again, he invited me. Persistently, he invited me. And so this week, when you go and you invite someone to Christmas um, services, you have no idea what might happen in a changed life from someone that you invite to this place. You have no idea what God might do through them, and not only through them, but through their family and through their community, because you invited them to this place. And when you feel prompted to serve somewhere in our church, you have no idea how that might impact not only you, but the life of the people that you encounter here. You have no idea how things might look different and how life might change because you decided to say yes to serving. And some of you, you, you might start to tithe, and you have no idea why it might happen. As you're, uh, if you, you loosen your grip on and your control of your own finances, and you begin to give back to God what is already His, you have no idea how God is going to bless you richly because of that. Some of you might decide to foster or might adopt a child, and you don't know the details, and you're like, I don't know. I don't know how this is all going to go. I don't know how this is going to work out. The cost is so high, but you have no idea how that child coming into your life is not only going to change that person's life, and maybe, therefore, the life of a future family and a legacy and a generation and a community, but how that child will change your life as well. You have no idea what a single act of obedience can set into motion when you obey what God puts on your heart because extraordinary acts of God often begin with ordinary acts of obedience. And so the angel speaks to Joseph and says, Fear not, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is in her is conceived by the Holy Spirit. You will give birth to a son and you will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And so Joseph's got a choice to make, doesn't he? What am I going to do with all this information? Does he do what's easier? Does he do what's right? Does he do what people want him to do? Or is he going to follow God? But he knows that becoming obsessed with what people think about you is the quickest way to forget what God thinks about you. But becoming obsessed with what God thinks about me is the quickest way to forget what people think about me. And so in one little verse, we see Joseph's decision. And I pray that this might be your decision. This might be your response as well as you respond to what God is putting upon your heart. In verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him to do. And he took Mary home as his wife. My friends, you have no idea what one single act of obedience will do, not only for you, but the world around you. You have absolutely no idea. And so when God speaks, I want you to wrestle with it. Is this easy? Is this easy? Is this going to be what is right? Is this going to be what people think I ought to do? Am I going to do what God thinks I ought to do? How are you going to respond when God puts a prompting upon your heart? And there could be one sentence that is a destiny-altering sentence that you did what the Lord prompted you to do. It might not only change your life, it might change the entire community in which you exist. 
I'm going to invite the band forward. We're going to reflect on this for one brief minute as we close out our service. I think there might be a lot of you who recognize that perhaps you are living with this idea that I am so concerned with what other people think about me. And you let that drive the way you interact with people. You let that drive your behavior. You let that drive so much of your life. What are people going to say? What are people going to think? Am I going to fit in? Do I going to measure up? Are they going to like me? Where am I going to stand? If I do this, what are people going to think? And I want, personally, in my own life, with, with all of me, because I struggle with this, you know, just as much as the next person, I want to be a person who is so convinced of God's unconditional love for me. And that that is my identity, that is my motivating factor, that I really could care less what you think about me. Because I know where my identity lies, and I know what God thinks about me. Emily did this last week, and, and I think it's really powerful. She, she asked that you raise your hand in response. We don't do this often here, but I want to do this this morning. If you're overly concerned not even overly concerned, if you're at all concerned with how people think about you. Maybe having been convinced, perhaps, this morning that you are someone who is concerned with how people think about you, and you're ready to say, God, I want to surrender this. I I don't want to be so controlled. I don't want my life to be, you know, so controlled by me living and me dressing and me behaving and me driving and doing all these things, whatever may be that comes my way. I don't want to be so controlled by what other people think about me, that I fail to live and to recognize that you are calling me into a deeper and better life. If you're, if you're at that point this morning, would you just confess that this morning, that you want to surrender to God and say, God, I'm, I'm ready to let you know that I am no longer concerned or no longer convinced that I'm going to live my life in a way that is going to be pleasing to man, but I want to live a life that is pleasing to you. Is anybody ready to do that this morning? Is anybody ready just to say that this morning? Can we as a, as, a, as a community just raise our hands and say that? I don't want to coerce anybody into doing that. There's no shame if you're not at that point. But look around, man. We, we, have, a, we have a community of people that want to please God and live for God. And here's the thing. There's a verse in this section that we kind of just skimmed over really quick, but it's actually the most important verse in this section. It says this. You will call him Jesus. And, and why were they... The angel's so convinced. Why, why, why was God so convinced that his name needed to be Jesus? Because Jesus means he will take away the sins of his people. You know, so often we live for the approval of others, right? So often we live for the approval of others, and we do what we do so that other people will think fondly of us. And our heart then is bent not towards God and love, but it's bent towards our own ego, it's bent towards our own pride, it's own, bent towards our own selfish ambitions and vain conceits. And that's what the Bible calls sin. It's putting me at the very center of everything. How are people going to look at me? How am I going to be viewed? How am I going to become popular? How am I going to live my life so that other people will react fondly towards it? And Jesus comes and he says, I have come into this world to convince you that there is a better way to be human. I've come into this world to convince you that there is a different way. I've come to save you from that life, to rescue you from yourself. So I'm going to say a prayer for us this morning. And if, if you're at a point where you recognize that you are a broken mess of a person, that you have a, a sinner, 
You need to know that Jesus came to save sinners. He didn't come to save the righteous. He came to save the sinners. But if you acknowledge and if you know deep within your heart that you have rebelled and rejected God, then Jesus is a Savior waiting for your trust. And so, Heavenly Father, we we thank you that as odd as it may seem, Father, we, we thank you for the acknowledgement. We thank you for eyes that see the depth of our own hearts, the depth of our own failure, the, 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 the reality, Father, I pray. I, I know that we see, Father, and I, I, I thank you that we see that so much of our lives are lived for the approval of others. And we do what we do because we want people to like us, and we are living for the conditional love of the world. And Father, I pray that we might recognize also that we will never get there. We'll never, we'll never receive the conditional love of the world because it is conditional. We'll never live up to the world's perfect standards. And so it's a rat race, Father, that we'll always run and we'll never catch up. And so, Father, I, just, I pray that um, you might open our eyes to see the beauty of this Christmas season that Jesus, the one who would save us from our sins, has been born into this world. He is our rescuer. He is our redeemer. All the burdens of the world have been placed upon his shoulders, Father. And I pray that we might be a people who cry out to God and say, God, we need you. We cannot do this from our own efforts. We need you, Father, to rescue us. We have tried and tried and tried to do this our own way. We have tried to earn the conditional love of the world, and it has failed over and over again. But you say, Father, that you love me unconditionally that you love me the way that I am, that you will embrace me and accept me with my sin and all. I'm trying to win the approval, Father, of something, and Father, you've said you've already had my approval. God, I pray that we would abandon our search for the appeasement of the world, but we would fully, wholeheartedly, God, surrender our lives to you because only in you is embrace, only in you is acceptance, only in you is approval, Father. And so, Father, we acknowledge and we admit that we are sinners this morning who have rebelled and rejected you. We have ditched you, Father. The first second we got, we ran away. But, Father, we are people who are coming back. And I thank you that you are embracing us with open arms. All you have, all you, all you say in your word, Father, is that we have the trust. We have the trust that Jesus took upon himself our sins. And in that, Father, we might find life. So we admit, Father, we turn from our sinful ways. We turn from our desire to be found and accepted by the conditional of the world. And we rest ourselves and our lives and our identity in you. We thank you that you did it for us. We pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.